Welcome to episode 33 of Justice with John Carvey, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and our guest today is law professor Bruce Party, who sits on the Justice Center Board of Directors. Professor Party works under the Faculty of Law at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Today we'll be discussing his paper, Public Universities, Speech Policies, and the Law, 14 Maxims. Probably the best way to introduce this topic is to go right to the paper. I'll read the last three sentences of its introductory paragraph. Quote, Public universities have become ideological institutions prone to political correctness and conformity. Prospects for reform seem dim. Without a genuine commitment to free and open inquiry on contentious subjects, there is little reason for the university to exist. Unquote. Let's start with a question suggested by that middle sentence, Bruce. Why do you think prospects for reform seem dim? Put simply, there isn't a constituency that wants reform to be done. If you think of the of the constituencies inside the university, faculty, students, administration, none of those groups are anxious to see the kind of reform that would be required to turn this ship around. Even governments, provincial governments that have jurisdiction over universities are not really interested in upsetting the apple cart. Even those governments which are conservative governments, in name at least, uh, and and have shown some signs of understanding that there is a problem, even they are not really putting in place anything that matters. And I put that down to political expediency. I mean, it's, it's always a dangerous thing to go too far in political terms with uh, changes when that change will be resisted by a whole lot of people, which might cause you political trouble. So, put simply, there isn't there isn't a constituency that really wants change to happen. Okay, I guess that begs the question: Why do it then if <laughs> you don't have a constituency for it? Well, that's well, that's is right. That, uh... but, but so, but everybody is is. I mean, not to a person, of course. You're talking about constituencies that are made up of people, and those people differ mm. in their views, of course. Uh, so there are lots of individuals who would like to see reform, but as mm. as constituencies, as a, I mean, part part of the problem with speech at universities, the inclination uh, to raise trouble when so-called problematic speakers come to speak, you know, and those speakers are Hmm. inevitably sort of right-leaning people. Um, That trouble is, arises because the population at universities is largely left-leaning, both faculty and students. And I don't know what what the proportion of students is, but, and there are, don't get me wrong, there are lots of students who are not left-leaning, but but they are a distinct minority. And I'm, I'm guessing about this. I don't have any studies, but certainly there have been studies done about faculty proportions in the U.S. And it differs from university to university and department to department. But uh, almost across the board, people who are on faculty and who are not left-wing are a distinct minority. Now, you know, you hear numbers like 1 to 15 or 1 to 30, Again, depending upon the location, I don't know what the numbers would be in Canada, but I suspect that might be worse. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, so as a group, faculty are quite happy. And in fact, a lot of a lot of the um, events that we've seen in the past little while. Let me let me talk about my own the the invitation that I gave to Jordan Peterson sure. to come and give our inaugural Liberty lecture. This is March nine March two thousand eighteen. Uh, after that lecture was announced and not yet given, there was a there was a lot of objection uh, that that was heard from faculty and students, and, and in fact, a lot of my faculty colleagues put together an open letter to the principal, basically saying that this should not occur. So it's the faculty themselves who are suggesting that in this environment of academic freedom, which they are entitled to. There are certain things that should not be permitted to to take place, 
And so as there's no reason as a group why they would want that, that to change. They're, they're the ones suggesting um, that there are certain things that should should not happen on campus. So you're not going to get an impetus for change from, from that constituency. And from the students, I mean, students arrive at university having gone through years of public education. And public education now is notorious for the the the, the it's, it's wokeness, the degree to which lessons about equity, diversity, and inclusion, and and racism, and it all delivered in a progressive way, are inculcated in students and. Again, not all of them, but many of them arrive at university believing a certain thing to be true. And one of those things is that you shouldn't be able to say something that's hurtful. And so when people arrive on campus to say things that they think are hurtful, they're quite happy to say, no, no, that should not, that should not be allowed. So you're not going to find an overwhelming impetus for reform from that constituency either. And then on the part of the administrators, and again, I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush because administrators are individuals too, but uh, as, as a group, they tend to want to avoid trouble more than anything else. And the way to avoid trouble is to go along with the winds and the direction that the winds push you, that's the where, where you should go. So it is, uh, it's, it's difficult to find any place to start with respect to the question of reform. Who, who are you going to go to and say, there's a problem here. We should fix it. Um, there's nobody willing to take on that challenge. Uh, nobody with a stake in it. In fact, most of most of the groups involved have stakes in keeping it the way that it is. Right. Well, in your uh, paper, you extolled the virtues. Actually, of was it your boss, the dean? Uh, he had actually stood up for you at that point. Well, yes. For, with so respect there was to somebody the somebody or a place to start. With respect to the Peterson video. Both the principal and the dean. This is this is uh, Daniel Wolf, the principal at the time of, at Queens, and the dean of law at mm -hmm. the time, um, Bill Flanagan. Both uh, said in response to the objections to the Peterson lecture, they said, "No, no, no. We are a university. We we do this. We're 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 allowed to say things that not everybody would approve of, and uh, the idea that we would cancel this is not on." To their credit, to their great credit, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, right. hopefully we hopefully. That will continue. So there, there are certain lines that have not been crossed at some universities, and that's good. Mm -hmm. okay. um, the idea that a tenured professor has academic freedom to say what they think is a line, and, and there may be a couple of, of exceptions, um, but for the most part, at most universities, that line has not been crossed as far as I'm aware in Canada. Um, right. There are other situations, though, where things have been restricted, like when students want to you know, have displays about certain topics. The administration says, no, you have to pay security fees to do that. And the security fees are very high, exorbitantly high. And so it's essentially uh, to shut them down. Uh, there are situations where professors who also sometimes serve in administrative positions as associate dean of this or, or, or a director of that uh, says something. And because they're now wearing two hats, both as faculty and as administrator, they get into trouble from the administration because they are now a representative of the administration and they get, uh, sometimes they get uh, dismissed from that administrative role. They don't get fired from the university. They don't lose their professor job, mm -hmm. but they do lose their administrative posting. And that's a difficult situation okay. because you're trying to do two things at once and you're used to having academic freedom as a professor and and the idea that you should now have to uh, restrict yourself and, and use a filter and only say things that the administration approves of is is a huge change and doesn't seem right for someone who is still actually a professor. But that that's sort of the context in which some of these uh, situations arise. Right. Okay. So, uh, would you say, I guess, this the crafting of this uh, paper, the setting out of these 14 maxims, this is because you were looking for a place to start? You said it's difficult to find a Yeah, so let's start. let's start with this. Is that and when what this is? Yeah, when, when when people talk about the speech problem at universities, and and by the way, I should acknowledge that not everybody agrees that there is one. There are some faculty mm -hmm. who think that this is all just a right wing conspiracy theory and there is no problem and what are you talking about? Um but I mean but if you 
<laughs> that to me is is a ridiculous uh, position, but nevertheless, they have it and they're entitled to it. Um, the, the the place to start for me in terms of working out what we're talking about is the distinction between academic freedom on the one hand and freedom of speech on the other hand, because people tend to conflate them and understandably so. Freedom of speech is right. a term this of is our- maximum number one. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly. Yeah. That's maximum number one. Freedom of speech and academic freedom are different things. Freedom of speech deals with the relationship between the individual and the government, the state. And freedom of speech basically is the idea that the state cannot censor you. They can't come in and say, no, you can't, you can't give that soapbox speech in the park. If they come along and say, no, you have to stop talking now, that's a violation of your freedom of speech. The academic freedom is a, is a matter as between the faculty and the university, its employer. So usually employees, the, the speech of employees, can in fact be limited or directed by the employer. So if you are a, let's say you're a, a greeter at Walmart and people come to the store and when they come to the store, you start to give them a, a lecture on, on the coronavirus and your, on your views of the policies that have been adopted on the coronavirus. And the manager of the store says, we don't want you to do that. We just want you to say, hello, please wear a mask and have a good day. And you say, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I have freedom of speech. And actually, no, you don't. Because you're you're working as an employee, you're subject to the employee's directions. And if you don't want to go along with those directions, then you don't have to work there. And they're entitled to to tell you what to say in that context. So in the normal course, if if faculty were, were simply employees, as they are at universities, then the, mm. then the university, absent other things, could tell them what to say. But that's not the kind of environment you want at a university because that would make the university a, a completely different thing than it's supposed to be. So what we have is we have provisions in collective agreements basically saying that the university promises not to interfere, not to direct the speech of its faculty, even though they are employees. So then your research and your teaching and your commentary, you can say whatever you want and we won't interfere with that. And that's, that's, I mean, there are, again, there are exceptions, but for the most part, I think that has stood up pretty well. And I hope it, I hope it continues to do so. Um, but so when people say free speech is in, in, is in jeopardy at universities, they, they don't usually mean free speech. They mean academic freedom. That raises another question though, which is a very sticky legal one, which is, is the university a part of the state because ah, if it, we've if dealt it, with this before yeah. that's right if it, if it is then freedom of speech would apply as well as the concept of academic freedom and unfortunately the courts have been very tangled about this question in some cases they've said yes the, the university is a part of the state and therefore the, the charter applies and the, and the charter of course is where the freedom of expression guarantee is found and in other cases, they've said, well, no, not, not in this situation. The freedom of expression uh, guarantee does not apply in, in, in this case. And it's very hard to, to, to see any consistency in the reasoning or, or rationales that the courts have brought to these various cases, court, uh, cases that have arisen in different provinces, uh, decided by different courts. And so it's very hard to give a definitive answer about whether or not A, a university is a part of the state or not, depending upon the function that's in question, and B, if it is, whether or not the freedom of speech guarantee applies. So we're just sort of stumbling from case to case to, to try and figure it out. I don't know when or if uh, we will come to some kind of of logical and and predictable tests to apply as to whether or not the the um, the expression guarantee does apply to universities. But there are some pro even even if let's imagine this. Let's just say that that the conclusion was well, yes, we're going to say that that for the purpose of freedom of expression, the university is a part of the state, and therefore the guarantee does apply, and therefore uh, universities are not allowed to curb speech. Well, that doesn't really answer the question because a lot of the situations that we're dealing with at university campuses are not about. Um, uh, censorship so much 
as the failure to provide a venue. So this, this brings up a second a distinction that I wanted to talk about, which is the distinction between negative rights and positive rights. A negative right. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's we're into maxim number two. Okay. That's right. Right. So, so, and, <laughs> okay. and, and, sorry. <laughs> yeah. A, a negative, a negative right is the right to be left alone. As long as you're left alone, mm-hmm. the right is observed. And you have no complaint. A positive right mm-hmm. is the right to be provided with something, with a venue, with protection, with facilities, with resources, whatever the case may be. It's, it's the right to be provided with something. And a lot of the speech uh, situations that arise on university campuses are really more uh, in the realm of a positive right claim than a negative right claim. So let's take the situation where a student group uh, wants to uh, put together a display about abortion in the in the quad, and the university says, "Well, well, we don't really want people to be using the quad for that." So no. So is that a negative right claim or a positive right claim? Because on the one hand, they've said, "No, you can't do that," which is censorship. But on the other hand, all they're doing is saying, "Well, you can't use the quad for that. We're not going to provide you with a platform or a space." In the quad, which is our which is our building, it's our space, so we're not going to provide you with that, which is really more of a positive rights claim. And if it's a positive rights claim, then it's not a charter claim because the the freedom of expression right. right in the charter is a negative right. So that that potentially, even if the university is thought to be a part of the state, and even if the charter as a whole applies, the freedom of expression guarantee might not apply to that problem because it might be a positive rights claim. Which is why, okay. in a lot of situations, although people immediately think, "Well, this is a this is a speech thing, therefore it's a charter thing, and therefore freedom of expression should apply," it's actually often just not the case. Okay, all right. <clears throat> well, of course, you're not talking about academic freedom at that point, are you? Because that's correct. No, we're not. We're, freedom. Would- that's okay. right. That's right. So, okay. right. So that's that's the freedom of speech angle. The academic freedom thing may still mm-hmm. apply, and it certainly would apply to a faculty member, because part of the deal in the collective right. agreement, where the academic freedom guarantee is given, is is in the context of this contractual relationship, and that relationship includes the university's obligation to provide you with all kinds of things, like you know, office space and classrooms and internet and and the right to identify yourself as a member of the institution and so on. And and these are things that if the university failed to do or refused to do, then you, your union could say, well, hold on, wait a minute, you're not complying with the agreement. When Professor so-and-so writes his article for the journal of whatever, if you pro- prohibit him from saying he's a, he's a professor at this university, you in fact are reneging on your promises in the agreement. So it's not okay. like you're, you know, it's not such that you're censoring him so much. You are preventing him from identifying himself as a professor at this institution. And that's part of your obligation to do. So in other words, academic freedom in, in seen in a broad way is both negative and positive. If the university refuses to let you to identify yourself as a member of the institution or says you can't lecture in their classrooms or can't host a guest speaker, that itself would be a violation of academic freedom. Not a violation of freedom of speech in the charter, but it could well be a violation mm-hmm. of academic freedom in the collective agreement. Now, the other problem is that students don't have a collective agreement. So they can't look to a particular provision in which the university has promised that they have academic freedom. On the other hand, mm-hmm. on the other hand, they do have a contractual relationship with the university of some kind because they paid their dues and there's a deal there of some some description and it entitles the students to certain things and the university to demand money. So there is a contract of some, ca- uh, some kind. So what are the terms of the contract? And the, re- the one of the answers might be is that the policies that the university has on speech and expression on campus might be interpreted as part of the contractual understandings between the two parties. In which case, maybe a student group denied the ability to mount a display or hold a talk 
could say, well, we don't have a collective agreement, but we do have a contract of a type, and we're saying that you've breached that contract. It's it's a maybe. Right. Well, actually, this yeah, I was going to say that this goes to that last sentence in the intro that I read. Uh, where you said uh, there is little reason for the university to exist at that point. That suggests to me that without freedom of speech, the students aren't getting the product that they are supposed to be getting. I, I, I'm wondering if that's a contractual thing as well. You know, uh, if they well, sh- are basically undermining yeah. their own existence, <laughs> they're not getting the product, right? Yeah, in so a way. I mean, I well, if you, if you agree that the purpose of the university is to help you to learn how to think, uh, and to, to challenge your ideas and to explore uncomfortable um, concepts and to, to challenge orthodoxies. If you think that the university is for this purpose, then restriction on ability to, to say certain things is, is, is curbing its reason for being. And if it turns into an uh, institution that essentially indoctrinates in, instead of explores – then you really have to wonder why anybody would bother going. I mean, surely you don't want to pay all this tuition and spend all this time just to get indoctrinated in a, in a certain subject or in a certain set of political ideas. Um, and yet some sure. people say that that's to, to what school for that. 12 years. Was, <laughs> that's right. That's right. You think that would be long enough, uh, to do the job. Um, and, sure. and, and, and no, 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 that's, it's, it's absolutely right. And, and, you know some of some of the ideas that uh, students have when they arrive at university. And again, I want to be clear: I'm not talking about all of them, but but um, some of them are, are pretty well pretty well enmeshed there, and very difficult to to uh, to get them to be challenged. Um, but if they're not challenged, and you don't, even if you as a student, even if you end up concluding that actually you you do still think and agree with the ideas that you came in with, which is okay, fair enough. At least you'll know why, and you'll at least be able to defend them mm-hmm. because you've seen the other side of them, you've seen the arguments against, you can articulate the arguments for, and you've had a you've had a robust, um, demanding debate about the validity, pro and con, about the ideas you hold dear. That's okay because that means you can think about them, think critically about them, but to wall off those ideas from other ideas that challenge them means that you don't really understand both the ideas that challenge them or your own ideas because you can't defend them. Mm. You can only learn to defend something when you they're attacked. And therefore, it is, in fact, in the challenge that helps you understand your own side. And without that, right. okay. you're not really so getting anywhere. The, yeah. yeah, that's the quality of education. <clears throat> Once we get past the first two of your maxims, we start to get a little more, I guess, complicated – yeah. And uh, maybe we could delve into some of those, uh, like looking at the third, uh, to quote, universities have no legal rationale to restrict the content of speech of its faculty or students who are already restrained by law. Right. Yet, you know, you talked about contractual relations. Uh, maybe you could explain what you mean by legal rationale to restrict. Sure. sure. Well, so uh, universities seem to think, and, and a lot of other people seem to think as well, that universities should have policies about speech on campus. Mm. And that's not so. If you think about what a campus is, it's just a, it's just square footage inside a country. And because it's square footage inside a country, the country's laws apply to the campus as they do everywhere else. All right, so we have... We have laws about defamation, we have hate speech laws, we have Human Rights Act, we have various kinds of laws that infringe upon speech. Those laws apply to universities as they apply everywhere else. I can't go into my classroom and claim that two of my colleagues cheat on their taxes because I have academic freedom. Because that's not, that doesn't matter. I mean, the university, let's put it this way, the university doesn't have the power to suspend the provinces and the country's laws. Just because I have a mm. clause in the collective agreement that says I have academic freedom doesn't mean I'm immune from defamation laws. If I defamate defame my colleagues, they can sue me in civil court. So there's no need for a university policy in order to make that so. It is already so. 
all of mm-hmm. our laws apply to universities as they apply everywhere else. And there's nothing the university n- needs to do to make that happen. And they couldn't prevent it if they wanted to. So the only effect that a university policy can have is to create more restrictions on speech than the law requires. Yep. Aren't they asking, aren't, aren't people demanding though, that they want more clarity? They want to understand how this works. Therefore we must have a policy, you know, spell it out for us. Tell us exactly what we can say and what we can't say. I'm not sure. Well, maybe perhaps with a policy, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps it's specificity, but the problem with trying to put that down on a policy is that the policy always gets it wrong. Uh, the, Mm. the, uh, the, when universities attempt to describe what the law is in the policy, it nearly every time it's not quite right. So you might as well just leave it to the law to decide what the law says. I mean, there's 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 statutes and there's cases, and it's not a it's sometimes not an easy thing to know exactly what it is. But any attempt to put so put the to try and nail it down in a policy is is going to be incorrect. So you might as well not try. Mm. The other problem that occurs is that when you when a university puts these things in their policies, it often comes off as though they are not just descri- trying to describe what the law is, but they're actually putting in additional restrictions, their own additional restrictions with their own definitions. So sometimes in a policy, and if the university defines something, you'll look at the definition and you say, well, hold on, wait a minute. That, this definition is not quite the same as the legal definition. So therefore, they must mean to have their own definition as well. So now you're subject to two different rules, one from the law and one from the policy. And sometimes that might be on purpose and sometimes it might be accidental, but either way, it's still possibly the case. So the mm, ideal so poli- complicating the matter. Yeah, yeah totally complicating the matter. The, the ideal policy for a university on speech is to have no policy. Because if you have no policy, then the law applies and nothing else. That's too, I don't know, universities are reluctant not to have policies on speech now. But if you're going to have a policy on speech, either because you want to or because there's a government directive requiring you to, to, we can get to that in a minute. But the best policy on speech is simply to say what I've just said, which is, number one, by the way, the law applies. And number two, we have no additional requirements or restrictions on speech other than what the law applies. Because then now we're clear. Now we're clear that the speech, the content of speech on this campus is governed by the laws of the land and by no other additional restrictions. So that if you're allowed to say it on the sidewalk, you're allowed to say it in the classroom. Okay. Let's, before we get too tangled up in something else, let's just go back to that government Direction, uh, right, for right. Policy? Okay, so you said, yeah, yeah. So in Ontario, the Ford government um, has put in place a policy, and I understand that there may be one in place in Alberta as well, but I don't know the details of that one as well. But in Ontario, the Ford government put in place a directive that required universities to submit their own policy on protecting speech on campus in accordance with the University of Chicago's statement, which is considered to be the gold standard, basically saying that that speech is not restricted, that we're allowed to explore offensive and 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 controversial things and and we will not be subject to censorship. And they were required to put the policy together and submit it to a um, which we call it a uh, equality council. And than to abide by. Now that's a that's a that's a good idea in the sense that it sounds pr- good. Well, the yeah. principles are right. The idea is right. The idea that mm. universities are not there to censor speech is, of course, the right idea. And the idea that the government should require the universities not to censor speech is also a good idea. The problem with it is that you're asking universities to write their own policies even though you've already expressed what the principles are. And what happens when universities, what happens when universities put together policies is that it becomes a political exercise. You've got all these constituencies inside the university and some of those constituencies don't want that kind of rule. 
They they want a rule that says, well, you can say whatever you want. We believe in academic freedom, but not when it's harmful. And what they mean by that is, well, you can you can you can say anything that's controversial, but you can't say, for example, that uh, transgender men are men because they're not; they're women. Because that's hurtful. You can't say that. Well, yes, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can say that because that's a uh, that's a point of view. That's an argument. And so a lot of these policies are very carefully worded so as to include the proper things, but also include to include other things that would allow the university to curb speech. And so if you read these policies, you'd be very hard-pressed to know what the rule actually was. And so the mistake in the policy in the, in, in the government in the government directive was to have government uh, have universities prepare their own policies. If I'd been the government, I would have said, Universities, here's the rule. You can't you can't censor speech. And you don't okay. need a policy. We're we're and giving you we're giving you the policy. That's the policy. Oh, okay. So that actually that's very simple. That's very simple. Okay. So they and just went too far and yeah. Yeah. A lot of these things can be done fairly simply. Now, that's not to say that the application of the rule is always simple in a particular case, but you at least know mm-hmm. what, where the line is drawn. Okay. So I guess you would like to see that all all, everything just simplified, I guess. You get rid of the policies. The government puts in a policy that says everybody's free. Maybe we could just back up a second here. And you said that the gold standard was Chicago University. Right. Maybe you could tell us if if these things shouldn't exist, how can you have a gold standard? <laughs> right. Well, you know, so for something that shouldn't exist. So, so the should I, should I read a bit of the Chicago? Um, sure. Version? Yeah. Maybe I, tell I, us why why this is. Yeah. A, sure. Okay. This so is a good one of a bad thing. Or whatever. <laughs> well. The Chicago Statement is widely lauded as one of the best articulations of the need for the value of of having free inquiry at a university. It's, it basically says that if you don't have free inquiry at a university, then why have a university? And, right. Okay. Going back to your introductory right. statement. And, and I mean, it's, it's very well put. I'm just trying to put my hand on it here. I can just read you a little bit of it. So it goes like this. Uh, it, it, it reads in part, It is not the proper role of the university to attempt to shield individuals from ideas and opinions they find unwelcome, disagreeable, or even deeply offensive. The freedom to debate and discuss the merits of competing ideas does not, of course, mean that individuals may say whatever they wish whenever they wish. The university may restrict expression that violates the law, that falsely defames a specific individual, that constitutes a genuine threat or harassment, that unjustifiably invades substantial privacy or confidentiality interests, confidentiality interests, or that is otherwise directly incompatible with the functioning of the university. Um, yada yada yada. But it that last statement sounds problematic. It does. I'll get back to that in a minute. But it finishes off strongly. Okay. It says it is vitally important that these exceptions never be used in a manner that is inconsistent with the university's commitment to a completely free and open discussion of ideas. Okay. So overall, that's pretty good. The problematic part that mm-hmm. you identified quite rightly is an example of saying too much. If you just uh. stopped there and said, the university may restrict expression. Actually, you don't even say that. The university, it says, the university may restrict expression that violates the law. Let's just stop with that for a second. The idea that you can't have to say that. Exactly. That's exactly right. And it actually puts the onus on the university to restrict expression that violates the law. Now, the question to ask there is, but that's not the university's job. If somebody defames me, then I should hire a lawyer and sue them in court. If somebody threatens violence on campus, well, then phone the police. Because they work for the state, and it's the state's law. Why is the university involved? This the the university. This because statement, they're defunding the police. Uh, <laughs> perhaps. Sorry. Perhaps. Just, I, yes. Don't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. That's that's quite right. <laughs> and ahead. and and I mean this goes this goes on too much. So again, I'll just read that sentence again. Yeah. The, the university made restrict expression that violates the law. 
that falsely identify sorry that falsely defames a specific individual that constitutes a genuine threat or harassment and so on so the problem with that is you're now repeating what the content of the law is either the law applies and it obviously does but if you say well that it violates the law or falsely defames an individual then what do you mean now because def- defamation is already part of the law and one of the principles of interpretation says that every word in a policy or a statutory rule has meaning. So you put it in there for a reason. So what's the reason why you would list defamation and other things in addition to the law? The conclusion might be, well, that you meant something in addition to what the law already contains. In other words, what we got now is something more complicated than it needed to be. There are open questions that didn't need to be open. They just could have been simple and straightforward. And even in the Chicago statement, which I said is a, is the gold standard, and it is, even that is not ideal. It has good principles in it, right. but it just it doesn't it doesn't really work as a rule. Because and, it gives the it's good because it gives that statement of why a free inquiry is necessary. I think that's, that's what correct. Mike said at the beginning, isn't it? Uh, that's right. That's okay. right. Yeah, and that needs to be stated. Yeah, over and it, over again. That that's valuable, and that's and that's the thing that uh, we are. Um, skirting around. When these uh, problems come up at Canadian universities, there is disagreement about this fundamental point. That Mm. part that I read, the first part, which is good, I'll read it again. It is not the proper role of the university to attempt to shield individuals from ideas and opinions they find unwelcome, disagreeable, or even deeply offensive. There is not universal agreement about that. A lot of people would say, Mm -hmm. no, no, no. No, we, we, they would say, we believe in academic freedom, of course, but not, but not speech that is, that is harmful, not speech that is violent. I mean, you'll, you'll hear this said now, speech can be violence. So when I speak and, you know, I'm giving a talk and I say, well, I, I, I'm going to go back to the transgender example because this, it's the one that often is, is cited. So if I, if I say, well, I, I, think that there are only two sexes. And I think that if you're born a man, then you're a man because I'm defining sex by my chromosomes. Well, some people would say, well, that's that's violent speech. You are denying the existence of a transgender woman. And we can't we can't allow that. Academic freedom, yes, but that crosses a line. And, you know, for my money, that's simply not true. Unless you are mm. actually violating the law and the and the and the the threshold for violating the law in terms of hate speech is very high. That would not constitute hate speech. Mm. The, the, as far as I'm concerned, the university has has no role, no business, um, just defining what the limits are in those terms because it just it starts you down the road of saying, trying to define, you know, what's offensive to whom and who gets to choose when somebody has to be quiet. That that won't do. Yeah, I guess that's what it comes down to is who gets to make these definitions. Right. And it sounds like we're sort of grading into our previous talk on critical theory at this point. <laughs> yes, well, this is all part it's all part of the same problem, right? So, yeah, yeah, it's, exa- it's exactly right. Yeah, so. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yep, the, the thing starts to fold in on itself. Now, one other aspect of this that I might mention. I'm sorry? No, yeah. no, go ahead. No, no, no well, one one of the one of the one of the Part of this I might mention is that it, sometimes the argument gets flipped around because part part of the Chicago statement that I didn't read and part of the directive that the Ontario government put together was the idea that it, it's legitimate for universities to have what they call time, place, and manner rules. And that's a fair that's a fair statement. I agree with that. And what we what they mean by that is mm-hmm. rules about when and where you're allowed to speak. This is not about content. Not about what you say; it's about how you say it and when you say it. And the idea is that you are not allowed, in fact, to prevent other people from speaking. So, so let's say you're holding a a, a, a guest lecture of some kind, and there are protesters, and the protesters march into the to the room, and they shout down the the speaker, so that the talk can't go on. Well, there are people on campus who say, "Well, that's." expression too, and that must be allowed because that's the community expressing itself. It's expressing its displeasure at the words that are being spoken 
and that has to be allowed. And the Chicago the Chicago statement and the Ontario directive basically say, no, 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 no. We're protecting speech. You're allowed to protest. If you want to go outside and protest with signs or chants, great. If you want to hold a competing talk with a different point of view, that's great. But what you cannot do is prevent people from speaking and prevent audiences from listening. And those people who don't want certain talks to happen don't agree with that. They call that mm. a restriction of speech. So uh, they want a sort of a free-for-all where the loudest voice gets to prevail. But I think that the- That the, sounds the, pretty free. Well, yeah, but this, the, the <laughs> distinction for me is whether or not you are restricting yeah. content, which you're not supposed to do, right? versus restricting when and where. So let me give an, a, an easy example of the when and where. So if I'm teaching a class and- a student has asked a question or made a comment, and then that cl- and then that student just won't shut up. I mean, they, maybe they keep talking, maybe they start yelling, maybe they disrupt class. In other words, they've had their go, and I'm telling them, no, 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 you've had your you've had your go. Please sit down and be quiet. And if they won't, then the university and the professor basically should have the ability to say, no, 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 either be quiet or leave. That's a time, place, and manner question. Note that it's not because of what they said or what they continue to say. It's not the content. It's the fact that they're disrupting the interaction, the exchange of ideas on behalf of everybody else. So you got to have those or the place doesn't work. Right. Protect the venue too, I guess. That's That's right. And, you know, there are all different kinds of ways you can have these rules. Like you have rules about where students can put posters and – where they can hold talks and and so on. And the the danger in them is that they appear to be time, place, and manner rules, but they will be used to restrict content. So going back to the example of the student group with the abortion poster display thing, I mean, the time, place, and manner excuse could be, well, yeah, you can do your display, but we don't want you to do it in the quad because the quad, we don't want you, we don't want it in the quad. That could be a time, sorry, a, a, a place rule. We don't want displays in the quad. Now, the way to test that is, well, are there any other displays on different topics in the quad that you're allowing? If there are not, okay, then maybe it's a fair place rule. No no displays in the quad. Okay, fine. But if there are other displays allowed in the quad, well, now you're just deciding you want certain topics there and other topics not. And so now we've got a problem because now you're censoring my speech. Right. Uh, you had in your maximum eight universities have no justification for imposing security fees on any speaker or lecturer. Would that fit into the same time and place thing or uh, the security fees? That's another way of, I guess, limiting well, a venue. Is it not? Yeah. So the security fees thing is very, is very, uh, it's, it's a, it's a problem because it, you, you could characterize this as a sort of time, place and manner rule in, in the sense that, the justification would go like this. So you're you're bringing a controversial person to campus and there's going to be protests and we have to protect the, the security of this person. And that's going to cause costs for the university. And therefore, we're going to ask you to cover those costs. And if you look at it that way, it doesn't sound so unreasonable. But what's actually happening is you've invited a person to talk, which is what you're supposed to do at a university. And some other people have responded to that and said, we're coming to protest to cause a lot of trouble, maybe to harm them, or maybe just to cause a disruption. But for whatever the case, expect trouble. And the university is hearing those protests and thinking, oh, well, we're going to have trouble. Therefore, we're going to make the speaker and the organizer pay these fees. And when the organizer can't pay the fees and has to cancel the event, essentially what you've done is you've given what is called a heckler's veto. The hecklers or the protesters have said, we're coming to cause trouble. The university has said, well, here are the fees to the organizers. Organizer says we can't pay. What the university has done is given power to the people who say they don't like it and given them a veto over having the the event at all. So for for that reason, universities, when you're when you're holding an academic talk of any kind, there cannot be any fees involved. It is the job of the university mm. 
to protect the speech of that person, whatever the content must be, might, might be. And so the speaker fees are, are, are just a, a no go. Right. Okay. Heckler's veto. Is that actually a legal term or is that just? It's a not a legal term, but common. it has become a term of <laughs> art in the, in the space, I think. Okay. All right. Uh, going, I'm going to skip over to, down to maximum 11. I wanted to, to question you about this. It sounds fairly straightforward, but perhaps you could give me an example of how it would apply uh, in the real world. There's no right without a remedy. Right. Now, how right. would this apply in the term uh, in the, on a university or in, to an academic or to a, a group trying to hold an event? I don't know. How would, right. how would this apply? Okay. So the idea in general is this. If you don't have a way to enforce your right, then in fact, you don't have a right. This is the legal equivalent of the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You'll, see, okay. you'll, you'll hear a lot of people talk about rights, you know, in various contexts. People will make comments about what rights they think they have or what rights they should have. People will talk about, mm. you know, the fact that we all have a right to housing, for example. Well, actually, no, you don't. Because if you go to a court and say, well, I've got no place to live, please make them give me one, the court will say, no, no, on what, on what legal principle is that based? So the proof of the existence of your right is whether or not you can get a remedy for for its breach. And if you can't, there is no right. It's a very sort of black and okay. white approach to trying to figure out when a an alleged right is actually a legal right and or, or versus just a figment of your imagination. So, so in this context, are we talking about – oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Well, so I'm just wondering in this context, are we talking yeah. about tribunals or are we talking about courts? Uh, uh, all, all, all of the above. All of the above. I mean, if you can go to a tribunal oh. and get your right enforced, then okay. Um, but that's assuming you have a tribunal. So going back to the Ontario Directive here, the, the Ontario Directive, again, requires the – Public universities to uh, to develop their own speech policies and to submit them and, and comply with them. So you think, okay, well, well, that's good because we have a series of policies now from each university about how they're going to protect free speech. So we're, we're good to go. Problem is that if the university in question doesn't abide by the policy, you can't suddenly take them to court or take them to a tribunal. Mm. That's not the remedy. There is no remedy. Um, the the directive basically says that in case of violation of the policy, students or faculty, as the case may be, must go through the university's normal processes to pursue a, 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 a resolution of the problem. Well, that was always the case anyway. So the, the directive doesn't change any of that. And if you can't get justice through those processes – well, then you can go to the Ontario Ombudsman. But the Ontario Ombudsman is an official, an, an office that has no power to order anybody to do anything. They have the power to investigate and to report. But otherwise, they're not a court. They're not a tribunal. They, they don't do orders. In other words, they're not an enforcement body. And so you have this whole mm. regime uh, under the directive that provides nobody with any rights to anything. And so the whole thing is just a, oh, okay. an appearance. It's an appearance of a solution. Um, so if you're going to do thing. if you're going to do it right, what you do is you create, pass a statute with the rule, and then you'd also say, but the violation of the rule can be enforced by any aggrieved person at a university, whether faculty or student, or, or something. You know, the different wording, perhaps. But uh, essentially, you'd want to give faculty and students, the ability to enforce the, the, the rule in a, either in a court or at a tribunal. Well, in terms of uh, academics, uh, you have your union or you have a collective agreement. Uh, do you have some other way of enforcing your freedom no. as well? That's, we haven't – no? No other no. way? Okay. Well, no, see, the, so okay. the, the union – so if, well, if, if let's, say, uh, let's say I write a, uh, an article – and the university says, oh, no, we don't want you to publish that article. We, we, we forbid it. We forbid you from publishing this article. I would, mm -hmm. or me or anybody else, would, would go to uh, the faculty association, the union, and say, the university is breaching my academic freedom. And the union, you'd like to think, would say, yes, yes, they are. We're going to grieve under the collective agreement. And that process is the way things work. 
whether or not it's academic freedom or any other kind of violation of the agreement. That's all fine and good. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, the unions will do that, especially in that kind of egregious case. Uh, the, the difficulty is that as a faculty member, you are reliant upon the union acting, deciding to act. If the union were to say to you, that's well, that's true, but you know what? We're not going to worry about that one. Well, then it's tough luck. You don't have any individual right to complain because you don't have an individual contract. And the parties to the contract are the union and the university, not you. You are not a party to the contract. And so you have no independent standing to sue under the contract. You must rely upon your union. And so it's a question of whether or not the union is going to respond to your particular concerns. And the unions, on the one hand, have a duty of fair representation, meaning that they do have to have a duty to respond to their members' concerns. On the other hand, they have a very wide latitude of discretion to respond in certain cases and not others, depending upon whether or not they think it's in the best interest of their members as a whole. So the one thing you cannot count on every single time is your union acting on your behalf when you think your speech has been curbed. Now, they probably would if the university tried to restrict publication of an, of an academic article, because that's an extreme case. But for example, if you brought in a controversial speaker and the ideology of the speaker was in opposition to the ideology of the union, and the university started to interfere in whether or not you could hold the event, you'd like to think the union would respond, but you don't know, right? Yeah, they have a, They might have conflicting interests, I guess, is what you're suggesting there. Okay, right. yeah. yeah. All right, I can see that. So yeah, it's not a, it's a weak, it's a weak, uh, Enforcement mechanism, I would say, or a remedy it's a weak, mechanism. It's a weak, it's a weak set of rights yeah. to hold. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what we're going, getting close to our hour here. I want to make sure we cover these last two, uh, maximum thirteen and fourteen. Okay. Before we uh, round this out, uh, thirteen. For most university speech issues, the charter is a red herring. Is that? Mm. Does that go back to our what mm. we were talking about before in terms of? Okay, so that. That's simply a repetition then of points that we've already. Made yeah, essentially. So, so you've got number. There are two. There are two considerations really. Number one, it's mm. going back to that matter we talked, we discussed between negative and positive rights. If you're making a positive rights claim yeah. to a venue or the or the like, then it's it's probably not a charter claim. Um, and you probably certainly as a faculty member probably have better rights under the collective agreement anyway to start with, because they do include much more specific and and uh, positive rights. So it's unlikely, especially if you're dealing with a faculty member, that you're going to get into a charter situation. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, uh, not at all, but but more right. likely is to be under the agreement. And with that, with a student, same kind of problems, right? You're if you're if you're demanding a venue or or protection or something of that nature, then it's very hard to shoehorn that into a charter claim. Oh, okay. All right. Okay, so we actually covered a lot of that, actually, in our yeah. previous talk. So. Right. Uh, okay, 14, uh, quote, some free speech disputes are more about unequal application of rules rather than freedom of expression itself. Right. Are these university rules we're talking about? Yes. So yes, they do are. they just have to clarify the rules or what? Well, no, because this, I mean, well, this goes back to the example of the uh, of the display in the quad. So let's say you go to the university, mm -hmm. you're a student group, and you say, we want to, we want to mount a display in the quad. It's anti-abortion. Anti and the university says, well, no, no, not in the quad. Or, oh, well, okay, well, maybe in the quad, but over in this far corner of the quad, and we're going to put uh, walls around you. And so mm -hmm. so it, that might be a an academic freedom or freedom of speech question. Um, but it depends upon this. It depends upon whether or not they give the same response to everybody who wants to put a display in the quad. If they say the same thing to everybody, then it's not a it's not a speech issue. It's a time, place, and manner rule thing. In which case, it's probably fine. But oh, if they okay. don't say the same thing to everybody, if they just say it to you because your topic is offensive, then it's maybe not even a speech issue properly properly put. It's probably an equality thing, which is, hold on. Especially if you are part of the state, you're supposed to be applying the same rules to everybody without discrimination. You're letting everybody else display. But that's a charter, isn't it? 
That's the charter. Right. So that goes back to our problematic yeah, okay. discussion about whether or not the charter applies. Let's assume for a moment that it applies. And this, this state apparatus is allowing certain things to go on the quad and other things not to go on the quad. Right. So you could characterize that as a free speech thing, but maybe it's better to do it as by saying, hold on. No, no, you're, you're, you're applying rules in a, in a discriminatory way. You're applying this rule to those people and you're applying that rule to us. And, you know, forget the speech thing. You're just discriminating between us and them on the basis of our beliefs. Now that argument makes some sense, except that section 15 of the charter, which is the equality provision has been interpreted more or less over time uh, by the Supreme court of Canada to mean substantive equality, not equality of application. And that means, okay, so equality of application means that the same rules apply to everybody. And substantive equality is essentially equality of outcome as between groups, which means that, which means that, that they are measuring the, 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 the burden or the result or the consequence of having a rule based upon whether you're a member of a disadvantaged group or not. So for just uh, one one example, let's say there is a um, let's say there's a requirement for a certain level of education for a certain kind of job, and the statistics mm-hmm. indicate that some groups typically achieve that level of education, and other groups don't. Well, the court might say, well, that's not substantive equality. If you get an ap- applicant from uh, one of these groups, then you're not allowed to have that requirement. Because the requirement itself, although it's applied equally, has a discriminatory effect. That's that's substantive equality or equality of outcome. But if you are a, if you are a, not a member of this of disadvantaged group, let's say you are a straight white male. Let's say your whole let's say you're a whole organization of straight white males, a whole organization of straight white Christian males who are anti-abortion, and you are being denied the ability to make your display in the main part of the quad. Okay. Well, section 15 of the charter is going to be a very hard go for you because that's not the way it's been interpreted. You can't fit yourself into a disadvantaged group and it doesn't seem to mean equality of application either. So you just might be out of luck. Oh, great. Well, that's a great place to end our talk. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. No, no. I, I, I wanted to ask actually about the whole whole package here, the whole 14 yeah. maxims, the paper, everything. What do you, what do you intend to do with this? You've, I guess you've set down this fortnight's worth of uh, maxims and where does it go? Is it just meant to stimulate more discussion? Or are you hoping to? Well, yes, yes, for sure. But I okay. also, I, I also don't want, I want to discourage too much spinning of wheels. I, some people are inclined to think that there are, you know, there are problems. We all agree that there are problems, mm-hmm. but that those problems can be fixed, um, by fiddling. And I, and I, I, that's a disparaging term. I don't really mean fiddling. I mean, I mean, by trying to, by trying to, uh, address the issues in a constructive way through litigation or, or campaigning or argument. And all of those things are good. I think those are very um, worthwhile and productive things to do, but I also don't think they will work. I think okay. that the remedies are limited. I think that the problems are embedded in the institution itself. I'm not sure how to fix them. I'm getting to the point of thinking that they cannot be fixed as long as universities continue in their present form. I really don't have an easy answer. I just don't want to be unrealistic Mm. about how far we're going to get uh, by pursuing the means that we've been pursuing so far. These problems are big, they're profound, they're serious, and I see no real prospect on the horizon for getting rid of them. Back to our opening question. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, that's okay. That's fine. I mean, that's, yeah, being realistic, I think, is, uh, is quite important, especially in this fight. We don't want to be Spinning our wheels too long, anyway. I hope. Right. Well, okay. Perhaps, well, I think we can the, probably yeah. call. Okay. Oh, sorry. 
No, no, no. Go I was ahead. just going to say, perhaps, hopefully, all of that energy and and uh, that that have has been spent trying to fix the problems in one way can be redirected and trying to figure out a, a another approach. I don't, I don't know, but but we'll see. Okay, great. Okay. Well, thanks, Bruce. Uh, I guess we're going to call the name to episode 33 of Justice with John Carpe. Thanks again for uh, joining us, and I uh, hope to hear from you again soon. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Thanks for having me.